This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. When I was 22, a book came out called Is Belief in God Good, Bad, or Irrelevant? A Professor and a Punk Rocker Discuss Science, Religion, Naturalism, and Christianity. The professor mentioned in the title is Dr. Preston Jones, who was then Assistant Professor of History, now Professor of History, at John Brown University in Arkansas. The punk rocker in question is Dr. Greg Graffin, vocalist and songwriter for the legendary band Bad Religion, who is also coincidentally a university lecturer in his own right, having taught science courses at UCLA and Cornell. At the time, I'd never heard of Preston Jones, but I was an obsessive Bad Religion fan, and the chance to read emails written by Greg Graffin was fascinating and intriguing. So at 22, I was truly trying to hone in on what could be called a worldview. I'd been mostly into cycling and music, but I was trying to be more thoughtful about the world. So I bought the book, and I read the book, but a vast amount of it written by two academics in their late 30s was mostly beyond me at the time. I remember enjoying much of the banter between the two guys, some of the discussions around music and history, but it was a hard book for me to wrap my brain around. So fast forward 12 years, and I rediscovered the book on my shelf, and at this point I'd been teaching religious studies, English, and history courses in schools around the world for a long time, and had thought a lot about that whole notion of worldview, and thought it would be neat to revisit this book to see what stood out to me the second time around. But before I reread it, I reached out to Dr. Preston Jones, the author of half the book and the editor, to see if he was interested in discussing a 12-year-old book with me for Classical Ideas. So I reread the book at age 34 and chatted with Preston about his views on the book quite a few years later. So I still highly recommend this book because it stands up well, and I enjoyed it much more at 34 than at 22. So my guest today is Dr. Preston Jones. Dr. Preston Jones's research focuses on the American Empire in the period of 1898 to 1917 and the personal experience of combat. He has published eight books, more than 200 articles, and has interviewed more than 100 combat veterans. In his classes, he emphasizes the use of classic texts such as Aristotle and Shakespeare. Dr. Jones received his bachelor's and master's degrees from the California State University and his Ph.D. from the University of Ottawa in Canada, where he was a Fulbright scholar. He served in the U.S. Navy He regularly reads books in Spanish and French, and he has run many marathons. And he is the editor and co-author of the book in question today, Is Belief in God Good, Bad, or Irrelevant?, published in 2006. So without further delay, here's my chat with Professor Preston Jones. Dr. Preston Jones, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. So can you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience so that they can have a sense of what your interests are? Well, I grew up in uh, Southern California, and I grew up in a a tough area, and I was always a reader, but I never associated school with reading. Uh, Pretty dangerous neighborhood I grew up in, and and, um, in a way I kind of semi dropped out of high school, um, but yet somehow I graduated, and it's still a mystery to me really how I graduated from high school. Um, but, um, you know, I did quote-unquote graduate, and I had a vague idea that I wanted to go to college, but I had no idea how to do that. I had no 
nobody was encouraging me to go to college because they hadn't seen anything in my high school career to indicate that I might do that. Um, no one in my church ever brought it up with me. They brought it up with others. Um, and so after about a year after high school, I went into the Navy. And about a week into Navy boot camp, you know, I realized that, you know, I needed to figure out what I was going to do when my enlistment was up. And so I became very motivated. And um, soon after Navy boot camp, I, you know, when I got to my base, um, I really, the first thing I did after I put my stuff down where I lived on the ship, I went out and found the the college office and, and I started um, taking classes. And like I said, I, I'd always been a reader. I, mean, I would, I would, I would actually ditch school and stay home and read books. And nice. So I didn't realize that at the time, but I look back now and realized I was kind of homeschooling myself, you know. But no one ever called. Like, no one from school ever called and said, where's your son? And, you know, my parents had no idea, and they never asked me if I was going to school or anything. But anyway, so I'd always been a reader, so I at least had that foundation. Uh, started started um, taking college classes when I was in the Navy, First college class I took, I absolutely failed, you know, bombed it completely. Uh, if I could have gotten a grade of Z, that's what I would have gotten. You know, I bombed this class so catastrophically because I had no idea how to study. I was a reader, but I didn't know how to study. But gradually that came along and, um, you know, and really the the topic or the, what, the, the academic subject that most interested me then and in a way still does now is, is psychology. Uh, I read a lot about psychology, and, and especially I got really interested in, and when I was in the Navy, I got very interested in schizophrenia for some reason. Hmm. And um, I didn't know anybody who had schizophrenia, and and it wasn't, you know, it didn't touch my life, but I got very interested in it. But what that meant was after the Navy, by the time I got out of the Navy, I knew so much about schizophrenia that I was able to talk a mental health facility into, um, you know, hiring me. And so that's how I made my way through undergrad and my master's degree. And and so anyway, I was very interested in psychology, and I thought I would study that in college. But I was also interested in history. I was also interested in religion. I was also interested in sociology. And so I actually did an undergrad degree in social science, doing history, psychology, and economics. And then at the master's level, um, I initially was going to do an interdisciplinary studies degree, but went with history. But the main reason I went with history is because I thought, well, history includes everything. You know, so all of the thinking about psychology up until, you know, one second ago is part of history. And everything to having to do with economics up until this very minute is part of history. So that's really why I, you know, ended up with a Ph.D. in history because, um, I just figured, you know, it's the most comprehensive topic. You know, you can study economics, you know, you can study history, but focus on economics. You can study history, but focus on psychology. Um, anyway, and so I'm, I'm interested in psychology. I'm interested in why people do what they do. I'm interested in how people think, uh, why they think the way they do, how they see the world. I'm interested in how context affects how people see the world. Um, my when I went to Canada to do my PhD, I was very interested in French-Canadian nationalism. Hmm. And I was interested in these, you know, these 7 million French speakers in North America who had a very distinct culture, a very distinct history. Um, and I just wondered, gosh, what's it like to be in, you know, a pretty small world in North America speaking French with a particular accent and, uh, and so even though my dissertation was my, you know, my PhD studies, you know, it was in history, still primarily the questions I, I was asking were psychological, you know. So those are, those are really, that's really my key interest, and in. I teach history, um, but my students will say my history classes often feel like philosophy classes or ethics classes or psychology classes because I'm not really interested in, you know, just sort of a recitation of events. This happened, that happened, this happened, that happened. But I'm really interested in ideas and how ideas shaped events and how people thought about themselves and how that motivated them to do different things. So I think, you know, going back to, you know, when I was in the Navy and just starting the process of, you know, school and being serious about it, those are really the kinds of things 
you know, these are the kinds of things I've been preoccupied with since. And I think this is, you know, to, to get to the book, I think one of the reasons, you know, the the interaction with Greg Graffin worked was that I think he and I were both genuinely interested in what the other thought and why we thought that. You know what I mean? So Absolutely. I, I think that's I think that's the common thread. Yeah, and your love of ideas shines through and that to me is like so as you know I teach a religions class in a high school mm-hmm, yeah. and every year I put like 25 guest speakers in front of 60 American Midwest seniors and wow, I just man. I just make the seniors interview the other people about their lives and that's, that's that's to me kind of what you did as well I mean I found you because of the book is belief in God good bad or irrelevant which is a collaboration with bad religion singer Greg Graffin um, yeah and your curiosity for asking good questions initiated this collaboration with a what might be an unlikely collaborator yeah so yeah. how did this collaboration in this book come to be you know it's it's interesting because um I sent the first note to Greg soon after my wife and I had moved to Arkansas, where I got a job at a small private uh, school university here in Arkansas. But I'd been teaching at a high school in Dallas and for some reason had been listening more to Bad Religion. I hadn't listened to Bad Religion a whole lot um, since the late 80s, but I guess, I don't know, I guess uh, in the late 90s, coming into the early 2000s, I was listening to Bad Religion more. And it just so happened I was out working in the yard and, you know, back then with a portable CD player. You yeah. know, and I was listening to a Bad Religion CD and after I was done working in the yard, I just came, you know, came in the house and looked up their website. And then there was a sort of a contact thing. And I just sent a note to Greg Graffin because I had heard somewhere, I had read somewhere that he had just, either he was close to finishing or had just finished a PhD dissertation. And so I thought, well, you know, what the heck, I'll, I'll send him a note and see what happens. And um, I was very surprised to get a response and, and, it just went from there, and I think it was just kind of perfect timing because I had just started a new job, and since it was my first semester at the university here, my my workload was relatively light, um, you know, compared to what it's been since. That very first semester was relatively light. And then Greg had just finished his Ph.D. and was on tour, or I mean, he went on tour as the book pro- as the book project was underway. He went on tour, and there's a lot of downtime. Um, and so both of us were in a place where we had more time than we usually have. Mm-hmm. And so I think the timing just just really worked out. But then, you know, after after we went back back and forth, you know, for a while, he started, you know, the band started working on a new album and. And then the workload for me was just ratcheting up. And so, you know, we called it. And, you know, conversations run their natural course. And, and I think this conversation ran its natural course. But that's really how it started. I was just out in the lawn listening to Better Religion. I thought, oh, I'll look them up and see what's going on. Oh, here's a contact thing. I'll send a note. And, and you know, assuming I, I wouldn't hear anything back. But, you know, then getting the note and then things went from there. So it was a lot of fun. Nice. Um, so the yeah. book is a lot about the beliefs of you and Greg, and there's yeah. a lot of religion and a lot of philosophy and a lot of science in the book. Can you yeah. just kind of give a brief overview of like your religious um, like identity, like where you are? Yeah. Well, I grew up. Um, I mean, I went to church since you know for as long as I can remember. I grew up in a, a Pentecostal church. Um, you know, charismatic church. Um, and then, uh, let me see, as a young teenager, I think, or maybe, you know, late childhood, my family moved to a Baptist church, um, a Southern Baptist church. I think, you know, what people would call sort of a fundamentalist uh, Baptist church uh, in Southern California. Um, but even that experience was important because I, I grew up among Pentecostals, you know, who will speak in tongues and, you know, have very demonstrative uh, services. And then, and then I went to a Baptist church, which was more subdued, you know, and those two camps, you know, I wouldn't say they, they don't get along, but they're quite different. 
But, you know, already by the age of 15, I had, um, I think I had the, the good fortune of being comfortable in both worlds. You know what I mean? Like, I could go back and forth between the, the Pentecostal world and the Southern Baptist world. And I didn't feel, you know, personally uncomfortable. I myself did not, you know, speak in tongues, and, and you know, I'm not a very demonstrative person, but I didn't mind being in that environment. Mm-hmm. And I And then, you know, now at the Baptist church there would be, you know, occasional sermons about, you know, problems with Catholicism and, and so on. But but then at school I was friends with, a, you know, with, a, with a, a young Catholic guy who, you know, clearly was a very committed Christian. And then my mom uh, worked at a Seventh-day Adventist hospital um, in Southern California, and that hospital was in a whole Seventh-day Adventist community. So really, by the time I, I was in my mid-teens, I was pretty comfortable among Christians in general, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Christians whose expression of Christianity was pretty different, um, but the differences never seemed, you know, like a, like a really big deal to me. So that's that's kind of my background, and that's kind of always how I've I've felt. I do identify as a Christian, and and that is a central central part of my identity. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm not real hung up on particular de- denominations and, and and things like that. I mean, I guess I can say just for you know, my, on in terms of my own personal thing, there was a a period in my life, um, eighth grade. It's hard to believe. Um, you know, I look at eighth graders now and see how young they are. Yeah. But when I when I was in eighth grade, I mean, I was, um, you know, I was I was headed down a pretty rough path, and so I continued to go to church. But but that year, you know, I was uh, I was smoking a lot of pot and I was stoned pretty much continuously, and um, was to the point where I was starting to have delusions. You know, like police helicopters were following me and all kinds of you know. I mean, the things things were getting pretty crazy. And I had, uh, you know, sort of a classic evangelical conversion experience, you know, where I prayed and, you know, asked God to deliver me. And, um, you know, and it was just one of those things where from that moment, everything changed, you know. And if you go to evangelical churches, you'll hear these kinds of testimonies. Um, I can say in my case, it was for real. And I guess just one, one last thing I'll say, you know, uh, a student asked me, you know, not long ago, you know, why why I'm still a Christian, you know, mm-hmm. and I could I could give a number of answers to that, but I think one answer I would give is, you know, um, all I know is that I was making a lot of really bad mistakes as a kid. I didn't have a lot of guidance. Nobody was helping me, you know, and I was headed down a very dangerous path, and so, you know. I asked God to help me, and I prayed to Jesus, you know, and formed this relationship with Jesus. And to use, you know, the language that we use, uh, he saved me. And for all of the doubts and for all of the problems that I can see in the church, you know, I personally can't ever turn my back on the person who saved me at that very dangerous point in my life. Does that does that make some sense? Absolutely. You know what I mean? I mean, why why I hold to this commitment when, you know, I mean, over the years there have been times where I'm like, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm done with this, you know, maybe I'm done with this. But there is that sense of, you know, you know, he really came through for you when you needed it. And you can't turn your back on him now. And so, anyway, so that's that's kind of my some aspects of my personal my personal faith. Sure. And so in yeah. the in the book, I mean, so Greg Graffin obviously does not share those views. But no. when you uh, two were writing back and forth with each other, like he was getting an immense amount of personal satisfaction out of talking about these ideas. I and, think so. Yeah, and he appreciated you, and I can really tell that. Um, and yeah. then, as I was reading the book, I also saw like there was like reviews on the back cover and everything where people blurb mm-hmm. it. And one of them yeah. that jumped out at me was uh, a guy named David Noggle from Dallas yeah. Baptist. Uh-huh. And my he calls the book a model of civility on the part of yeah. both parties. So, sure. how does that review sit with you like now 
in the light of the idea that our country is the way it is today yeah. in 2018. So challenging. Yeah. Well, I hope it's true. And, you know, what was interesting is that, you know, um, despite my efforts and the efforts of, of uh, you know, the publisher, et cetera, to present the book as a discussion, you know, a, a discussion that sometimes got a little sharp. But sure. It's a discussion. We're not out to win points. We're not out. It's not a debate. We're not out to win points. We're out to discuss. And, you know, despite that, it was interpreted, you know, um, as a debate among a lot of people. But I hope that, I hope that, um, I hope that it's true, that it serves as a model of, of dialogue. I mean, I think even more now than when the book was published, I mean, gosh, the old-fashioned art of conversation, uh, the old-fashioned art or just the art of, you know, people talking to each other, listening to each other, asking follow-up questions. Um, my sense is that maybe that kind of thing has always been rare, you know, but maybe it's more rare now. Um, and so my hope is that, you know, that the book could serve as a model to folks about, you know, here's how, here's what it can look like when, when, you know, a couple or more people are interested in what the other thinks. And sure, they want to argue for their side and they want to say, here's why I think what I think and here's why I think you are mistaken. Um, but, you know, for it to be a real a real conversation and, you know, not to be worried about, you know, who's up, who's down, who's, you know, got the most points, et cetera. So I, I hope that that's true. I hope that it serves as a model of a dialogue. And I have to say, like, whenever last year I had two students in one of my religions classes and one and the guy was like a diehard atheist. And mm. there was a young woman who was a very committed evangelical Christian in the class. And throughout the year, they had like kind of like sparred like sarcastic comments across the room at each other. And yeah. it was really delightful for me to watch them yeah. figuring themselves out while also like challenging their own preconceived beliefs and the ways things they held strongly. And then at, sure. the, and then at the end of the year... When they did their final exams, like those two were in a group together for their final, and they yeah. had the most amazing conversation. And they realized that all year long they had been building up the other one to wow. to really understand like where they fit into the world. Like they for the yeah. for the for like the first time they had truly considered alternative points of view. Yeah. Well, I think I mean this is a this is a great thing. This is um. You know, John Stuart Mill's point in his great book on liberty, you know, which, uh, you know, why should we allow other people to say things that, you know, bother us, you know? Mm -hmm. And one of the points he makes is, look, I mean, you know, suppose you're right and what they're saying is completely wrong, but you don't, you can't really know if you're right until you've been challenged, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's one reason we want people to speak is so that we can be challenged. And then another thing he says is, look, it, it may turn out that you're mostly right, but maybe you're partly wrong. And so if we let those people speak, then we can discover that, oh, okay, well, you know, I think I'm 75% right, but I see, I see that on this point maybe my thinking is not so good. And so I think, you know, what, what you say just confirms that, that if we are people of goodwill and we're really interested in learning, then I'm not going to be so worried if somebody disagrees with me because if that person shows me that I'm mistaken about something, then I've gained. You, you see what I'm saying? I Absolutely. Mean, you know, being, you know, having a having a, a better view or a more accurate view or a clearer view, thanks to someone else's challenge, that's that's a gift. And so, you know, it sounds like you're doing excellent work in your in your classes and. Uh, you know, I hope that can just happen more and more. Well, and one of my favorite things in the book is when you and Greg will make some really, really good points, and then the other one will say, wow, that was such a good point. And it happens over and over and over again in this book, where, mm -hmm. you, where you both seem to do that. And I do think yeah. that Graffin writes with like a slightly sharper and more like sarcastic pointed tone. Uh -huh. But um, I yeah. do see that both of you are genuinely considering the other's positions, and it's in writing yeah. too, which is way harder than like measuring tone of voice and things like that, like you and I are doing right now. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know, I you know, other people will interpret it differently. I think that I start, I start much. Um, I don't know what's the right word. I think Greg comes on much stronger at the outset. 
mm-hmm. than I do. And then at the end, I think I kind of ramp things up a bit. The reason I kind of start out with something of a soft touch is just because I wanted to keep the conversation going. You know, yeah, I was worried yeah. about I was worried about you know the conversation dropping. But I think I, I think you're right. You know, I, I think you know certainly at the beginning, Greg is a little bit sharper. But I think um, you know I think that Greg and I came out of the conversation you know basically the same. But I I, I do think though that we did encourage each other to think about things or to consider things we hadn't thought before. And I mean, I did, you know, although I I came out of the conversation basically, you know, the same person, Greg did really challenge me to think about things that I have thought about since mm-hmm. and that have actually made a pretty significant difference in how I see the world. What did he So, what did he most I'm, persuade what did he most persuade you of? Well, I mean, to think seriously about the theory the theory of evolution. You know, and now, you know, so a few minutes ago I was talking about how I grew up in, you know, a Pentecostal church and a, and a fundamentalist Baptist church and then was comfortable around Seventh-day Adventists. And, I mean, in all three of those camps, generally speaking, you know, the theory of evolution is, it's, you know, it's not accepted and um, it's rejected, you know, generally speaking. I think that's right. And the general view is that the world is 10,000 years old. And, and I, you know, I accepted all of that. By the time the conversation with Greg started, um, I wasn't so much committed to the idea that the world is 10,000 years old, but I hadn't—I just hadn't thought much about evolution. Uh, but since that conversation with Greg, you know, I did a lot of reading about evolution and have, you know, I've come to the conclusion that the evidence for evolution is pretty overwhelming. Um, so, you know, so even though I, you know, I, at the beginning, you know, I, I, uh, identified myself with evangelical Christianity and I, and I still do. Um, I mean, that is one thing that, you know, I think a lot of evangelical Christians would have a problem with, you know, hearing me say that, that I think the evidence for evolution is pretty overwhelming because there are huge implications that come from that than, how do you read the creation story in Genesis? And, and there are there are really huge questions mm-hmm. that come from come from that. If you say, well, I think the evidence for you know a very very long evolutionary process is strong, and I think that human beings are part of the evolutionary process, that does you know from the point of view of of a Christian in generally the, the evangelical world that does raise a lot of problems, and and it does um, you know it can cause some trouble. Um, but you know that that started in the conversation with Greg. It, it's not that I was opposed to thinking about evolution; I just hadn't. But he really forced me to because evolution is, was at the, you know, was at the center of his outlook on the world. Um, and so he really forced me to to pay attention to that. And the result was that my view on that, and then consequently a number of other things you know, went through a pretty significant transformation. So the conversation, you know, was hugely important for me. One of the most interesting yeah. things that happens whenever I have conversations like this is I love asking people, like, where their views have changed. Yeah. And so that really strikes me just now. Um, yeah. Did yeah. he Did he ever tell you, or do you have a sense of what you most persuaded him of? Well, I don't, you know, I never asked him specifically, and so I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think that, um, I think that he came to see that he had a certain perception of Christians at the beginning of the conversation. And, you know, the perception he had of Christians um, at the beginning of the conversation, I mean, there was a basis for it. You know, there's a reason he had the perception that he had. Of, you know, Christians are people who, you know, operate just on faith. If you put facts in front of them, they'll say, I, I choose faith over facts, you know, that that sort of thing. And look, there is a basis for that. You know, I mean, you can observe that in the world. And so I understood where he was coming from. But I think that... Um, I think that he saw that that doesn't hold true across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think he saw that, you know, that being a Christian doesn't mean, you know, committing intellectual suicide, you know. And in fact, there are a lot of, you know, very, very bright people. I wouldn't include myself in that camp, but there are plenty of very, very bright 
you know, people who are committed Christians. I, I think he came to see that, and not long after the uh, the book with Greg, he put out a solo album, and he included on that a gospel song, which I don't want to read too much into. But at the same time, I just don't know if he would have done that before. Nice. If if that makes sense. And, yeah. You know, I think I think what was what was most fun is that um, Bad Religion was working on an album. I forget which one right off the top of my head, but it was he was they were working on an album as the book project was going, and it was fun to see how the conversation that he and I was having how some of those ideas worked themselves into the lyrics of the songs. Yeah. On that on that CD, that was pretty cool. It just indicated that you know that he was thinking about the conversation apart from the conversation as I was. So aside from that, I mean, that's my inkling that just Greg came to see, you know what, it's possible to be a thinking, engaged human being and also a Christian. You know, I, I think that his perception was that that wasn't possible. I think he saw that that was, and that's a significant change. Certainly what he pushed me to think about, um, you know, had a pretty significant impact on me as well. The, I uh, think probably a bigger impact. Yeah. The the album you're referring to, and the only reason I know this is because it's my favorite Bad Religion album, and it's The Empire oh. Strikes First. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. yeah um, so Greg talks a lot about a concept called naturalism in the book, yeah. and he kind of like, he talks a lot about naturalism, you talk a lot about Christianity. Um, can you yeah. just say very, very briefly what naturalism is, because it relates into the next question I'm going to ask you. Well, my understanding, and, and I may get this wrong, so please uh, feel free to correct me, but my understanding is that naturalism, as Greg understands it, is simply an approach to the world that wants to, you know, base all of its claims on what can be what verified, you know, given given evidence that emerges from the natural world. I think part of it as well. Again, um, if I'm not getting getting the whole thing, please please you know um, make your addition. But I think it's also just an assumption that all that exists is what's in the natural world. And so if we're talking about spirits, if we're talking about a god that we can't see, a god that we can't prove in any sort of mathematical way, um, then that just doesn't fit. So things that pertain to the natural world, knowledge that can be derived from the natural world, and anything that's not, you know, linked directly to the natural world, then that we discard, or things that we can't verify, um, you know, using, you know, uh, mathematics or you know, um, evidence, then those sorts of things we discard. I don't know, is that, is that your sense of it? That's my sense of it as I as I look back on it. Yeah, basically. And, like, you have a nice critique in the book that I wanted to point out. And uh -huh. so on page 42 in the book, you said, I want to hold to my claim that naturalism yeah. as a complete outlook is self-defeating. It seems to say that the universe is indifferent and we are a part of the universe, yet we are not indifferent. So yeah. what are your views on that quote now? Because that really struck me, and I wrote wow next to it in the margins. Yeah. Well, I think that's still right. And, and you know, I mean, that's, I wish, you know, that, that idea doesn't, it's, I don't think it originated in my own head. C.S. Lewis, you know, says something similar to that. But, um, you know, that, you know, I, I think Greg would say a number of times, as other atheists will say, you know, look, this world is, is all we have. And so there's no point in longing for some other world or wishing for some other world or wishing, you know, for something outside this world to be of, of use to us. And, but, you know, I mean, you know this as a religion teacher. I mean, one of the most basic human impulses is to live as if there is something more. Mm. Um, now, of course, this sense that human beings certainly through the vast majority of history, I mean, the overwhelming majority of human history, you know, something absolutely common among human beings has been a sense that there's more to this world than this world, right? And that expresses itself in very different ways. But if, if, if that's not true, if there's nothing 
to the world, if there's nothing more to the world than the world itself, then where would such a sense come from? I mean, that's, that's what's mysterious to me. And so the way C.S. Lewis puts it is, you know, um, people, you know, hunger for food, and there is such a thing as food, right? Mm-hmm. People hunger for human friendship, and there's such a thing as friendship. Well, human beings, certainly historically speaking, if we look at, you know, human beings to the overwhelming majority of history, and including the great majority of human beings today, human beings have a longing for spiritual things. Um, God or, you know, I mean, some some sort of spiritual connection. And so you'll you'll hear people say, well, I'm not, you know, I don't adhere to any traditional religion, but I'm spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll hear people say, well, I haven't attended church in decades, but I pray. You know, a desire for something spiritual. But I'm just wondering, you know, where would this universal, ancient, persistent desire come from in a, in a universe that has nothing spiritual about it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It, it, it just seems like, I mean, now I do think, I mean, I do think that I have concluded that human existence, no matter how you slice it, is kind of crazy. You know, I do think there's <laughs> something like inherently nuts about, there's something inherently crazy about human existence. And so maybe this is just an example of it that, you know, one of the most common desires human beings have is for something that is related to something that does not exist. But it just seems to me the more reasonable approach is to say, look, if one of the things we can detect in human beings, going back to, you know, that most ancient literature we have, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, um, even, uh, you know, ancient archaeology, you can see that people are clearly interested in the idea that there is a spiritual world and we want to be in contact with that spiritual world. It just seems... It just makes sense to me to say, well, then, you know, there must be something about that that's real. You know, at least that's, there's a kind of evidence there that there is, there is something beyond this world. And so anyway, it just seems to me that, that if you're just going to flat out assert that that's not the case, that all we have is this world, there's no spirit world, there, there is no God, there are no gods. I mean, you're making an assertion in the face of overwhelming human experience. And human experience is not, you know, I don't know, you know, it's it's hard to pin down the way a mathematical equation can be pinned down, but it seems to me that that's pretty overwhelming experience. I mean, overwhelming evidence for something. If we're looking at something that's, you know, common among human beings from the most ancient times to the present, this sense that there's there's more than this world. You're, uh, does that make does that make some sense? Yeah, and you're on my you're yeah. in my wheelhouse there with that Gilgamesh uh, reference. I love that. Um, yeah, yeah. And some of the some of your views in the book like caught me sort of unawares. Like you were kind of edgy in a lot of your mm. in a lot of your comments. Um, you yeah. mention uh, a lot. Like I think that the audience now can get a sense that you're very open to changing your mind. You're very open to uh, other ideas. You're very open to considering those ideas deeply. And sure. one of the ways that you really surprised me is when you said that you were completely indifferent to the existence of heaven. Is that, yeah. still, tr- is that still true? Like, why did you write that? Because that, yeah. that really jumped out at me. <laughs> it is true. And, you know, I say that with some reluctance because I'm worried about sounding sacrilegious. And, you know, I, here's, I mean, I, I, here's how I, under- I perfectly understand if evangelical Christians listening to this think, God, this guy, you know, he thinks the evidence for evolution is overwhelming, and now he's saying that he's kind of indifferent to the idea of heaven. Here's what I'll say, which complicates it a little bit, and then I'll try to explain that. I, I have a very strong and profound belief and an unshakable belief in the Day of Judgment. Right, I mean, and I'm actually, and I I actually am really, really glad to have a very strong belief that I am accountable for my life, not only in this world, and the the criticisms and the judgments that people make about me in this world, but I have a very, very strong belief that in the next world, uh, that I'm going to be held accountable for the life that I live, and the the reason I like that is because. 
it sounds very old-fashioned maybe, but it helps to keep me on track, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to be accountable for how I treat my wife and how I treat my kids. I'm going to be accountable, not just to my boss now, but I'm going to be accountable in the next world to God for how I conduct my affairs in the workplace, right? And um, so it's curious. I have a very strong sense of, you know, the day of judgment, right? And um, I'm not afraid of it, but I have a very strong sense that it's real. But then curiously, of course, the idea of judgment is that, you know, you pass through that and then you you know, and then the hope is that you go to heaven, you know. And there, for some reason, my mind just kind of shuts off. Um, So it's curious. I have a very strong sense of judgment, but the heaven thing I I have a hard time with. And again, I don't, it's not that I don't believe in it. It's just I, um, I have a, I have a very hard time feeling anything about it. And I, maybe that is partly because of the way heaven is described in the New Testament. I mean, if heaven was described as, you know, there are going to be all sorts of fascinating trips to, you know, interesting places, and there would be just one awesome lecture after another about physics or whatever, you know, that wow, that sounds really interesting. But, you know, what I've, what I've learned about heaven or what I've heard about it is we're going to know everything, and it's just going to kind of be a blissful situation, and I don't know. I'm just like, gosh, what makes life fun? You know, what makes life fun is learning. So what would that be like to be in a context where we don't have to learn anymore? You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's a, that's. It's just hard for me to feel really motivated about that. And then, you know, I, um, you know, honestly, one of the things that's said about heaven in the New Testament that I, I kind of wish wasn't there, I mean, Jesus says that in heaven there's no marriage, you hmm. know. And, uh, gosh, I mean, I don't know. I'd kind of like to still be married to my wife. You know, I like her. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, actually, this is an idea. the Mormons have an idea that when you're married, you're married forever, right? Not mm-hmm. only are you married in this world, you're married for all of eternity. I think that might help to explain why, relative to the rest of us, Mormon families are stronger, you know, I think, relatively speaking. Because you get married within the Mormon church, that's, a, that's like an eternal thing. So anyway, to get to that, just the idea of being indifferent to heaven, I, I just, the information we have about heaven in the New Testament, gosh, and I, again, I hate to say it out loud because it sounds sacrilegious, but it just doesn't, I'm trying to find where's that point of personal connection. And people say, well, you know, you're going to be, it's worship and singing and, but I don't really like to sing. You know, it's even that's really kind of a, you know, the book of Revelation talks about in heaven, you know, they're singing all the time. And, well, I don't really like singing. And, you know, and gosh, I mean, what I like most about life is learning. And But I, I'm i told that, you know, there won't be anything to learn because we'll know everything in heaven. So is that, does that kind of make sense, you know? Absolutely. But I know that, yeah, but I know that, I mean, I, I recognize that a lot of, a lot of, Christians, when they hear me say that, will be very put off. But I'm just trying to be honest, and, you know, yeah, I'm trying to be honest. I think what I would say, though, is is when I encourage people to consider, uh, you know, Christianity, when I encourage them to consider being disciples of Jesus, it's not, hey, look, if you you do this thing, then you you get the heaven reward, you know? Because I'm not really fixated on the heaven reward. I don't really think about it very much, and I just have a hard time identifying with it. I encourage people to consider Christianity. I consider I encourage people to consider becoming disciples of Jesus because um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think it's just a really. Oh, this doesn't sound right. I think it's a great way to live. I don't know. I just think I think it's its own reward. You know. Striving to be disciples of Jesus is is a reward in itself, and so maybe that's maybe a little bit of an advantage I have is that I don't make you know do the Jesus thing so you can get heaven later. I don't know if that you know if that makes sense, but um, anyway, I do know a lot of Christians hearing me say these things will probably probably be a little little distressed, but 
that's how I feel. I'm just being honest with you. What was the Christian yeah. audience response to the book? I know that there was a, a large amount of correspondence after the book came out. So what was yeah. the Christian response like? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure that there were, there were a lot of negative reactions, but I just, the personal response I got in, in the emails was overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, but I think people who would take the time to write the emails maybe would be more apt to be, you know, those who felt moved or compelled, you know, in some positive way. Um, so that's the, the personal feedback I got was there. Now I know you can look up reviews online and, the, and there's more of a mix, a mix there. But in, in terms of the response I got personally, um, it was overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. And I, I just think, I think folks were appreciative of, um, the attempt to, you know, be civil, to be strong but civil, to be principled but also flexible, um, to hold your ground in some respects, but also be willing to what be willing to change if um, you know if if there are good reasons to to change. I think folks appreciated that. I, I think maybe a lot of Christians you know, maybe they appreciated a sense that, you know, here's a here's a guy who's one of us, um, and he's committed on the one hand, you know, but on the other hand, he's not real rigid, and, um, you know, he's open-minded in the good, in, maybe in a good sense, you know, open-minded, you know, um, meaning, you know, not meaning, you know, relativistic, but you know, I'm, I'm open to hearing ideas and also honest, you know, like even just what I was expressing a few minutes ago, if, if I'm asked a direct question, you know, in most cases, I'll, I'll try to give an honest answer, even if I know that it will put some people off. So I think that, I think that folks were appreciative of that, but I'm sure that there are a lot of folks out there who didn't appreciate it. I just, I just didn't hear from them. One of the one of the things I'm really interested in is like American religious and biblical literacy and also yeah. scientific literacy. Do you think that yeah. we're are we good at those? Are we good at either no. one? Are we good at neither? Like, what's your take on that? Uh, look, I mean, I, I'm I, I'm truthfully I'm just heartbroken about the state of education in the country generally. You know, and um, look, I mean, if something like I'm just I'm guessing here just based on my own experience, but if you know, if 25% of students who arrive in college don't even know who the president was during the American Civil War, I mean, you know, how could you, I don't know, how could you grow up in the United States and just not pick that up somewhere, you know, that Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States during the American Civil War? I mean, this kind of really rudimentary knowledge is missing. Um, rudimentary, you know, knowledge about the political system um, that members of the House of Representatives are elected every two years, for example. I mean, you don't have to study political science to know that. I mean, that's a really rudimentary fact, that if you're just slightly aware of what's going on, you would eventually pick it up over, you know, 12, 13, 14 years of education. What's sad, and, and you know, here's a critique of, of evangelical Christianity, um, you know, I teach at a school that identifies itself as evangelical, and most of my students grew up in evangelical churches. But their knowledge of of the Bible and, you know, even the New Testament, you know, which, um, of course, evangelicals, you know, emphasize the importance of the whole Bible, but in practical matters, the New Testament does seem to, you know, be of more immediate use. But just the... Um, I mean, the lack of basic knowledge about the New Testament, about the Gospels. Um, you know, this is something that I that I see consistently, and I just I don't. It's hard for me to understand, you know, how how this happens. And you know, I, I said to you at the beginning of the conversation that I grew up in a rough area and did not identify with school, but I did stay home and read, you know, and so I guess that's where I learned a lot of things. But the the knowledge of of the Bible, I think, is, is really low. You know, I do have some students who have a pretty good, you know, understanding of things, but but many don't, and, and this includes students who grew up 
you know, going to church consistently, Sunday school, church once or twice each week, and still their knowledge of the scriptures is, uh, is pretty pretty slim. And putting, you know, sort of personal spiritual life aside, you know, the the Bible is probably the single greatest um, what text in Western history, right? I mean, in the history of Western civilization, it's probably the the single most important text, just because it's so foundational to so many other things. And so, to lack a basic knowledge of the Bible, that means that that there's so much in the history of of Western civilization that is just beyond your grasp. An obvious example would be Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, where he, you know, quotes uh, scripture, he alludes to scripture, and and if you don't know those references, then what Lincoln is really getting at is is lost to us. So, I mean, I you know, this is one reason I'm I'm uh, glad that the school you teach at, you know, has a religion class. Um, Because even if, you know, even in a completely secular society, you know, it seems that we would realize, you know, whatever we personally think about the Bible, it is historically a a, a text of foundational importance. And if we don't basically know what's in the Bible, then much of Western history is, is... I don't want to say beyond our grasp, but there's a lot in Western history that we just really can't get. Um, as far as science goes, I think I would say the same. You know, not being a scientist, I'm reluctant to to speak there. But I just don't know that I just don't know that there's a high degree of, of scientific literacy out there. So this is why. I mean, as I talk to you and and I hear how bright you are and how motivated you are and and I can hear you know your energy and I can hear your enthusiasm for teaching I mean this is why you know um I'm encouraged just to to talk to you because I think the more motivated encouraged bright interested teachers we have out there then the more students we can you know we can awaken um so I I hope that hope that answers your question Dr. Preston Jones, this has been a really wonderful uh, hour that we spent together today, and I'm so grateful to you for responding to uh, Come On Classical Ideas and chat with me about these things. Um, if people have any questions for you, um, do you have any places that you, you know, can be reached? Well, I'm, you know, I'm pretty much, all I do is email, so I'm I'm not on any social media. I don't do any of that, and so I'm kind of old-fashioned that way. Um, but my, I'm easy to find if you just look look me up, uh, Preston Jones at uh, John Brown University, a small private school in Arkansas, and uh, it's easy easy to to find my email and uh, and to connect with me there. That's that's the best way to do it, just old fashioned email. Well, thank you so much. Um, I love the book. Is belief in God, good, bad, or relevant, collaboration with Bad Religion singer Greg Graffin. I've read it twice now, once when I was 22 and once when I was 34, and they spoke to me both times in completely different ways. So thank you so much for bringing that really cool correspondence out to the world. Well, I appreciate it, Greg. Thanks a lot. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>